The Lord's Prayer is most likely the most familiar prayer. Whether you come from a Christian home or not, wherever you grew up in the world, when you think of a prayer, the Lord's Prayer is this prayer that we turn to, that we go to, the Our Father. Yet many of us don't recognize that the Lord's Prayer is found right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's as if Jesus is preaching and all of a sudden he stops and says, and when you pray, pray like this. And it seems sort of odd because imagine if I'm preaching and I'm making a few points and I'm talking to you about your heart and then I'm talking to you about your practices and then all of a sudden I say, let's pray. Why is this prayer in the middle of Jesus' sermon? Why is this prayer, this famous prayer, in the middle of Jesus' sermon? We've called this series on the Sermon on the Mount, this is part 10 of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've called it, we've called this series Arriving. And we've called it Arriving because what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is announcing is that the kingdom of God is arriving on the earth. Now you hear a word kingdom and you think, well, I don't don't understand kingdom. Imagine if, if Jesus was saying God's government is arriving in the world. And you're thinking, finally, a government I can trust. You know, this is it. One that maybe this is, and, and this is maybe sort of the idea, even in the first century, people saying, look, a ruler that will be just, a ruler that will be holy, a ruler whose ways and whose decrees are right and true, a ruler who will rescue us, a ruler who will deliver the oppressed, a ruler who will set things right. Yes, we want God's rule to arrive on the earth. But the thing about Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is that he's saying it's arriving, it's here, but it's not yet. It's coming, but it's not here in its fullness. And so Jesus at the same time says the kingdom of God is at hand and also says on that great day. And so he, he situates us, he locates us in between. We've also called this series arriving because this is also, this is a word that describes who we are as the people of God, a people in process, a people on the way, a people who are arriving. We've been rescued from our sin, we've been saved from the, the bondage of, of evil, but yet we are not yet who we will become, right? We are not yet what we will become. And so we too are a people who are arriving, we are a people who are in between, You could say that this whole kingdom of God thing is about being a people who live in the in-between. Now, right here at this moment, you can say living in the in-between, you mean not feeling like you really belong anywhere? You mean wondering where it is that you can call home? Yeah, I know that feeling. And maybe some of you, as you think about this, you say, yeah, that, that describes me pretty well because... I've often wondered where I fit in. I mean, I go to church, but sometimes I don't feel like I fit with all these people. But then I go to work, and I know I don't fit with all those people, because sometimes they want to say things or talk about things or do things after, after class or after work, and I know I don't really want to join in on that. So I wouldn't say I belong there, but I know I don't fully belong here, or at least I don't feel like I fully belong here. And so there's this sense of dislocation, of Where am I? Where do I fit? Maybe you felt this way even with uh, with with a church to say, well, you know, I mean, I kind of like this liturgical stuff, but I'm not sure about 
this charismatic Holy Spirit stuff. Or you say, well, I like the singing and the modern worship, but what's with the whole bread and the cup thing? Oh, well. And there's repeated moments in life where we feel like I'm in between. I'm somewhere in between. I'm not in Egypt anymore, but I'm not yet in the promised land. Where do I fit in? And you know what we often do when we feel this way is we tend to say, okay, the solution is external. The solution is I've got to change my situation. So if I don't feel like I'm going to find a different city or I'm going to find a different job or I'm going to find a different church or I'm going to find a different thing. And as soon as I do that, then I know I will no longer feel like a person in between. What I want to say to you this morning is being part of the people of God is to make your peace with being a people who are in the in-between. Being part of the family of God, being part of the people of God, the kingdom of God, to join in the kingdom of God is to join in an in-between people. Is to say, we are no longer in Egypt, but we're not yet in the promised land, and we're somewhere in this wilderness. But you know, the thing about the wilderness is, is whenever you find yourself in the wilderness, you always want to, to know, well, is there something I can do to remind me of who I am? Is there something I can do to remind me of where I belong? And this is the reason why Jesus gives his disciples a prayer. This is the reason. Because it's not by an intellectual understanding that we say, oh, okay, thank you, Glenn, for showing me the three points of why I belong and who God is, and thank you, now this helps my soul. No, it's only by praying that we find where our home is. It's only in prayer that we, get, we begin to be formed. It's only in prayer that we begin to recognize, okay, this is what I'm part of. Okay, this is where I am aligned See, the temptation with the Sermon on the Mount is to make it, to moralize it. That's, there's at least three pitfalls with the Sermon on the Mount. Pitfall number one is to moralize it, is to hear these words of Jesus and to say, okay, well, I am going to go out, I'm going to do that. I will never lust again. Let me know how that works out. I will never get angry again. I will forgive everyone who offends me. I will always turn the other. I, I, you know, moralize it. I can do it. The other pitfall is to spiritualize it is to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean, like, love your enemies. He just meant think good thoughts about your enemies, eventually. <laughs> just in my spirit to sort of, hmm. You know, it doesn't mean to actually, like, be kind to them. So if not to moralize, not to spiritualize, the other pitfall of the Sermon on the Mount is to individualize it and to say, well, this is something I must do. And Jesus puts a prayer right in the middle of the sermon to say, no, you can't moralize this because you have to turn toward your father if you're going to live this way. And you can't spiritualize this because I'm teaching you a prayer that says, on earth as it is in heaven, this is not about it flying away one day. And Jesus says, you can't individualize this because in the Lord's prayer, there is no me or my or I. The Lord's prayer opens with these words, our father, our father. Our Father, those are centering words. Those are words that right away locate us within a family. I've called the title for this talk this morning, Our Father and Our Family. Because this prayer says to you, you have a father. This prayer says to you, you have a family. 
You may feel like an in-between people. You may feel like a people who are not in Exodus, or not in Egypt anymore, but not yet in the promised land. And Jesus wants us to remember, yes, but you have a father. And yes, you have a family. The phrases in the Lord's Prayer, especially the opening lines, are borrowed from a Jewish prayer called the Kaddish. Many of us think that Jesus kind of riffed and made up this prayer on his own. Actually, he starts with an existing, well-known Jewish prayer and then makes some changes to it. One of the most significant changes Jesus makes to it is by opening the prayer with our Father. It's not that people of Israel never called God their Father. It's just that they didn't do it very often. In fact, if you were to search prayers in the Old Testament or maybe even in the intertestamental period, you wouldn't find a lot of prayers opening with our Father. Who would they speak of as their Father? The Pharisees do this to Jesus. They say, Abraham, our father. Our father, Abraham. So they, they felt better saying that you're the God of Abraham, and then Abraham is our father. Jesus says, let me do a move here that's going to change this axis a little bit for you. I'm not just Abraham's father or Abraham's God, and it's not just Abraham that's your father. I want you to recognize that Yahweh is your father. There's actually a few strategic places in the Old Testament when Jewish prayers address God as Father. One of them, by implication, is at the Exodus. When God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go and rescue my people. What does he say? He says, because Israel is my, anybody know? My firstborn, my son. God uses father-son, father-child language to explain the Exodus. In other words, Yahweh says, listen, it's because Israel is my firstborn and I am their father that I'm going to rescue and deliver them. So father prayer language is actually Exodus language. And, and one of the, several of the commentaries I was reading this week said that Jesus is, is drawing into this father theme to point towards a new Exodus. The Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 63 The people of God, the prophet is saying, listen, Abraham has forgotten us. We thought Abraham was our father, but Abraham has forgotten us. But you, O Yahweh, are our father. So father language in the Old Testament was tied in with the first exodus, but it was also tied in with the hope of a new exodus. It was tied into this hope of saying, God, when will you deliver us for real? When when will you break in? And when Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to pray, our Father, it's Jesus' way of saying, when will I break in? Right now. When will I deliver you? Right now. When will the God of the Exodus bring about an Exodus again on a massive scale right now? All of a sudden, we realize this is happening. Right from the first words of the prayer, we say, okay, you're doing this. And then it says, our Father in heaven. Now, you and I think of heaven as this faraway place. But for a first century Jew, heaven is not a faraway place, but an overlapping space. Not a faraway place, but an overlapping space. And so when they said, our Father who is in heaven, they're saying, the God of the heavens who hovers right over our world who's right here, watching right here, who's close, who's at hand. 
Hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This overlapping space called heaven is not supposed to be um, airtight, if you will. Jesus teaches us to pray so that this overlapping space will begin to join our space. Jesus teaches us to pray so that God's space invades our space. So that the God who delivered in the Exodus, the God who is delivering again, is the God who is right here. Now think about that for a moment. How does that change prayer when right from the outset we pray to the sovereign king who wants us to name him as father, who is right there, who is close, who wants us to pray, God, bring the influence of your reign into this situation. That's why we pray for healings. That's why we pray for miracles. That's what we, because we're saying, God, bring the influence of your reign to bear on this situation. That's why we pray for peace. That's why we pray for wisdom. We're, we're saying, our Father in heaven, bring the influence of your reign into this sphere right now. Maybe the, the greatest gift, I think, of the charismatic or Pentecostal movements was it taught us that God was not distant or indifferent. You know, maybe somewhere along the way we developed this idea that God is distant. Heaven became, you know, because of the enlightenment world, heaven became, the concept of heaven became upstairs, far away. But that's nothing like the first century Jewish understanding of heaven, which is near. And so all of a sudden God became distant, but not just distant, but indifferent. And I think the, the biggest blessing of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements was it said, you know, God is not distant or indifferent. God is near and he hears. And when we say, our Father, who is in heaven right here, bring the influence of your rule into my sphere, into this world right here. Jesus says, pray this way. Last fall, it was September, I think, mid-September, and it was a few months after we had had our fourth child, Jane, and you've heard my wife, maybe at the Mother's Day sermon, share a little bit about what she wrestled through for the first six months or so after having Jane, maybe six to nine months after having Jane of a bit of a postpartum, you could say blues or anxiety, just capacity went from here to here. And many of you know this. Uh, some of you know this because as moms, as postpartum, some of you, others of you know this just because of what anxiety can sometimes do. It brings your capacity down to and we were kind of at a loss because we couldn't call her parents as they were going through some stuff that they were dealing with, uh, health issues as well. And, and um, my mom runs a school back in Malaysia, and so I knew her flexibility wasn't quite there. And, but we got so desperate that I thought, babe, this is bad. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to call my dad and just, just see. And she's like, to see if he'd come? Like, that's crazy. I was like, I know, it's crazy. I mean, Malaysia, it's about, I always tell people, Malaysia is about as far as you go around the world before you start coming back, you know, because it's round. <laughs> I logged on to Skype and dialed my dad and he said, hey, son, how are you? I said, not good, dad. We're not, we're not doing well. And I could barely get another word out of my mouth before my dad said, do you want me to come? So I'll be there. 
I said, Dad, would you really? I mean, I, I didn't know how to ask. I'm there. He calls me back 10 minutes later. He goes, it's done. I've, I've used miles, tickets. We'll be, I'll be there in a month. It took a, took a few weeks. <laughs> Mileage tickets and whatnot, blackout dates. But the point is, before I could even ask, the answer came. Before I could even say, is there any way you could come in Colorado as it is in Malaysia? Do you think you could just, you know, do you think you're willing, could you? Before I could even say, say he says, do you need me? Do you need me to come? I'll be there. And all of a sudden, the distance of I don't know how many thousands of miles was closed in a second. And he came and he stayed with us for a month and from mid-October to mid-November. And I tell you, that was a turning point for us. It took other things as well. I mean, there, there was counseling involved. There was nutrition involved. All these other pieces that go along with it. But I, I, there was something spiritually that happened when my father came into my home. And it brought this peace, saying, Dad's here. Dad's here. And I think this is what it means to pray, Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not a, oh God, please, oh hey. It's not if you get the incantation right and if you say the right. It's saying, God, please, I just, I need my Father to be in my home right now. I need the Father to come into this situation, right? I need the Father to bring the influence of His covering, of His peace, of His will, of His reign. I need the Father to be here. And Jesus says, you pray that way. Absolutely, you pray that way. Don't you for a minute think that you're alone in the wilderness. Don't you for a moment believe that you're stuck here having to figure this out on your own. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then Jesus goes on and he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is the second half of the prayer where you'll find, again, not a single me, my, or I, but all ours. Because you know what happens when you find out who your father is, you find out who your family is. Jesus says, you have a father. And when I introduce you to your father, I also want to introduce you to your family. And your family is not about nationalities, your family is not about racial lines, your family is not about culture or upbringing or hobbies or common interests. Your father is all the people of every tribe and tongue who call on the name of Jesus. This is your family. And so when Christians in Syria are being persecuted, we weep with them. And when Christians are poor, Suffering around the world, we say, give us this day our daily bread, and we're thinking of them, calling out for their bread. Because, you know, for us, you think about our daily bread. I mean, this prayer for us doesn't mean too much. Give us this. I've got, I've got plenty of bread, actually. Actually, I'm gluten-free. I don't even have bread. I don't even need bread. <laughs> That's my home. I got this rice bread alternative. It's pretty good, but yeah, you know, it's, but I can afford it. Holly and I read this book earlier this summer called More or Less, and it's about how our more can meet someone else's less, and how the excesses in our lives can sometimes meet the place of need or lack in other people's lives. 
And so this guy who's writing the book did this experiment where they decided to not go to the grocery store and see how long it would take them to eat every single thing in their pantry and kitchen. I mean, he said for like a week they were eating Jello, you know, and then it was like a week of ramen noodles. I mean, I think they gained 10 pounds after six, but it took them like six weeks to eat themselves out of extra surplus food, you know. So in our house, no one can ever say there's nothing to eat. Like bologna, there's nothing. There's bologna. You can eat bologna. <laughs> New Life Church has a partnership with, with a couple communities in Swaziland. Swaziland is an independent monarchy kind of within South Africa geographically, but it's its own thing. And, and we partner with, through a ministry in town here called Children's Hope Chest. And, and they use sponsorship, but the, the money actually goes to support this whole community. And, and there's local pastors on the scene doing discipleship work with the children and all that. And this is a child named Samiso. And they, these children, every once in a while, will, will, will send a booklet, you know, where there's pages in here and they fill in the blanks. And, and, and Rion, our, our global ministries pastor, his sponsored child, that's his sponsored child. And there's this page that says, blank is important to me. And if you look carefully, the child Samiso wrote, God is important to me. And then he scratched out God and wrote food. Because sometimes we want to give the spiritual answer until we realize, yeah, you know what I really need is food. (laughs) Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus says, don't you pretend that you don't need anything. You say to God what you need. Say to him the, the very depths of what you need. And you remember that when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, even if you don't need literal daily bread, one of your brothers or sisters does. Someone else in your family does. And so praying this prayer reminds us that I am not disconnected from Simiso in Swaziland. I'm not disconnected from Clement, who's Chris Burley's sponsor. I'm not disconnected that every time I pray, Clement is praying too. Simiso is praying too. For Chris Burley's sponsor child, he, uh, under this blank, it says, I think love is, and he wrote, sharing food. What is love? You know, it's, we, the luxury of the bourgeois to philosophize about what, what love is. It's very simple for Clement. Sharing food. Give us this day our daily bread. And then Jesus says, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Daniel Grothy taught a beautiful sermon on vengeance and on loving your enemies. You've got to get the podcast if you haven't heard it. But he used this phrase, he said, draw a bigger circle than you've drawn. Because when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father is perfect, really the language is not, be, it's not moral perfection Jesus is talking about, but he's talking about an inclusive circle of the Father's love. And our circles are small because we want to say, well, this is my tribe. These are my people. In the search to belong, we keep drawing circles. In the search to find out where I fit, I keep drawing circles. Okay, I want to know who the theological, liturgical, charismatic is. Okay, this is my circle. And Jesus keeps saying, draw a bigger circle. When you say, our, in that hour is not just you and your peeps. You and your Google circles. Does anyone even use that anymore? Jesus says, draw a bit. But, but Jesus, you don't mean for me to include 
the person who offended me. You don't mean for me to include the person who's wronged me. You don't mean for me to include the person who I'm still struggling to forgive. And Jesus says, draw a bigger circle when you pray. It's prayer that teaches us. In fact, it's probably better to say it this way. It's prayer that teaches us to draw a bigger circle. It's prayer that reminds us that our family is bigger than you think. It's prayer that reminds us that there is that there are, that there may not be as many outsiders as you think there are. It's prayer that reminds us that we need forgiveness as much as they do. Whoever the they is. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This word temptation is not what you think of when you think of temptation. It's not, most likely in the context here, it's not saying, well, God, don't tempt us. Because James tells us in the New Testament, God doesn't tempt us to sin. So there's no, there ought to be no need to say, Father, don't tempt me. That's not what Jesus is referring to. There's another way this phrase can be taken, and that is, the great day of testing. And if this whole prayer is a prayer of a kingdom that is arriving this now and not yet, if this whole prayer is for a people who are no longer in Egypt but not yet in the promised land, then these people know what happens in the in-between age. There's a whole lot of testing. In fact, there might even be this great day of testing, this great day of tribulation. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you don't need to be gluttons for punishment here. You can pray, God, deliver us from the great day of testing. You know, when I get fearful about things in life and when I think about our children and when I think about people we're close to and think, well, you know, there's, there's going to be trouble in this world. Trouble will find us. And say, well, what do I pray in those moments? I, I don't know how to pray in those moments. And I've started to just pray these words, Lord, don't lead us into a time of testing. Do you know it's, it's okay to pray that? We don't have to say, well, God, hey, God, if you want to just make me suffer, bring it on. You can, Lord, don't lead us. If, 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 it's, if you can not lead me into a time of great testing, that, that'd, be, that'd be great. <laughs> don't lead me into a time of testing. But, Lord, deliver me from the evil or from the evil one. This idea that, look, there is an adversary in this world. This is something that maybe is moderns or, or, or postmoderns, whatever we don't want to talk about, but there is an adversary. There is a spiritual enemy who is trying to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, pray to say, Jesus, deliver us from this. There's an onslaught of wickedness every day from the media, from wherever, from culture, from friends, from all around. There's an onslaught that's trying to t- drag us back into Egypt. And God, you've already delivered us from Egypt. Deliver us from the Egypt in us. Deliver us from the thing that wants to put its hooks in us and pull us back. I think when you pray this, once again, you're remembering, lead us. Now, you say, well, God, I'm not really in a time of testing. Sure. But how is it for the faith of those around the world? I'm looking at Eric Todd and the work he does with Every Home for Christ. And Eric has been to some of these remote places of the world um, um, using technology in some ways to enable discipleship resources to to go to these uh, local churches in those places. Many of you with different other ministries. Gee, do you think there are believers around the world who are in the times of great testing? Yeah. 
Maybe when we pray this, we're not just thinking about me and my little world, but our family. We're saying, God, please don't lead us. Deliver them, Lord, from the onslaughts of the enemy. Deliver them, Lord, from the oppression of darkness in, in these countries. God, deliver us. Deliver us as the church of God in America from the onslaught of materialism and secularism. Deliver us from the influence of these things in our own heart of consumerism and narcissism. God, deliver us from this. God, we're all in this together. God, deliver us. The moment that this really came home to me, I mean, I had taught, you know, for a little while, there's no me's, my's, and I's in the Lord's Prayer. It's very nice, very, you know. Yay me. I taught him that, I, you know, but the way, it, the day it became real was in March when I was in Swaziland with several of, several of you that were on this team and, and we were visiting these two communities that we sponsor, that we have connection with and, and we were visiting this, this one community, the Makayane community and they said, um, the, you know, the, the local ministry leader who was you know, who goes and visits the children two or three times a week. She says, okay, children, let's stand and pray. And all of us on our team just kind of, you know, bowed our heads. Like we were expecting someone to just pray. Oh, Lord, thanks for this day. You know, whatever. We just Instead, what we heard was this. I think that changed the way I prayed the Lord's Prayer. I think I saw a bigger circle of who our family is. I think I realized that it's not just my daily bread, but our daily bread. I think I realized it's not just my deliverance from evil, but our deliverance from evil. The most beautiful thing about this prayer, and maybe the reason we call it the Lord's Prayer, is because Jesus is this prayer. Jesus is this prayer. Jesus is the one who sets us in right relationship with the Father in heaven. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God, the rule of God on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is our daily bread. Jesus is the reason we have forgiveness because he himself became our sinfulness. Jesus has overcome the world and its trouble. Jesus is the one who will deliver us from all the evil in it one day, with the last enemy being death itself. The kingdom is his. The power is his. The glory is his. Now and forevermore. We pray this prayer because Jesus is this prayer. We pray this prayer because Jesus hasn't just given us words to say, but Jesus has given us his very life. 
We pray this prayer not because there's new ideas that we can now, oh, thank you, I'll just meditate. We pray this prayer because as we take bread and cup and look at the cross, we're saying, Jesus, you have made this now my reality. The Father that we pray to is not just his Father or her Father or their Father, but our Father. This family that I now belong in is not just someone else's family. The Old Testament is not just stories of Abraham and some cool people. The stories of the Old Testament now become your family story. Tell me a story about my family. Here it is. Tell me a story about my father and how he delivers the world. Here it is. Tell me a story about where I belong. And Jesus says, here I am. Your father. This is how you know you are beloved. Your family. This is how you know you belong.